0: I don't really see the point of comedy unless there's something underpinning it. I mean, what are you doing? You know, are you doing some sort of, some kind of exotic display for the court to be patted on the head by the court, or are you trying to change something?
1: I sometimes sort of joke that I'm trying to put the party back in the Labour Party, but it has to be fun, there has to be a sense of fun. I'm
0: going to give you a simple joke, and I want you to do it alright? Okay. Are you having a laugh? Is she having a laugh?
1: Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Nadia Idle, and I'm here today as usual with my friends Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And Kia Milburn. Hello. And today we are talking about comedy. You know, you've got to have a sense of humour. got about to have a laugh. Life. So, guys, why are we talking about comedy today?
2: I mean, it's an interesting topic in itself. It's a big part of life, and we like to talk about life, so you know it's a really interesting thing to get into but like i'd make an argument that comedy's in a bit of a strange state at the moment it's almost like it's not in a good place if you know what i mean
0: nothing's funny and <laughs> nothing's funny anymore
2: and yet and yet we're expected to be funny at all times particularly on this podcast um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what people tune in for <laughs> it is here's
1: <Kia's> one-liners <laughs>
2: i mean i mean that is the problem in it when you dis- when you like dissect comedy it r- removes the humor from it so um, this might be our least funny podcast so far. But anyway, look, look, what I'm trying to say is there's certain things going on with comedy, which make it an interesting thing to talk about. One of those is this question we're talking about now, which is, does political satire work anymore? I think it completely and utterly broke down during the Corbyn years. I don't think it's it's managed to resurrect itself, but it's a political satire. It's almost like it's a defunct form, or, or, or if it's not defunct, then it's moved into a different sphere, like, you know, The Onion and these sorts of things. The other thing you'd say is, that comedy or stand-up comedy in particular, and probably particularly in the U.S., it went through a sort of like Me Too moment a few years ago, and there's been a big backlash against that. And at the moment, it's sort of really dominated by not particularly interesting grandstanding around sort of free speech and these sorts of things, basically. And it's sort of interesting to think about why that is. At the same time, it, it sort of feeds into some other debates that we've had for a long time around things such as what was once called the alt-right, you know, the, this grab by the right to try to erect itself as as though it's the counterculture in some sort of way, to sort of like seize on transgression. We're the ones who transgress. Transgression as humour, humour as transgressing and written lines in the sand, etc. is like a key way, you know, that there's, a, there's an attempt to use humour perhaps as just uh, as a a sort of excuse, basically, for transgressing liberal norms, something like that. Uh, And that needs sort of thinking through as well, I think. You know, in order to understand any of that, we'd have to work out what comedy and humour is and how it works and so
1: forth. Yeah, and also who is funny and who is not and who's allowed to be funny and who's not. Mm, So listeners... Listeners, just before we get into the meat of this episode, we'd like to remind you that we now have a newsletter. Yes, we have an ACFM newsletter and you can subscribe by going to novara.media forward slash ACFM newsletter. We've got some great content, including Keir's essay on the politics of wrestling and stuff like that. And also just a quick reminder, because some of you might not know, that you can listen to all of the music mentioned on our show, on our expanding playlist, which you can just search for ACFM on Spotify. Um, and also, for the full multimedia experience, please listen to ACFM on SoundCloud. And you can go to soundcloud.com forward slash Novara Media. And last but not least, you can support us to continue this show by supporting our hosts, Navara Media. So just go to Navara.media forward slash support. So without further ado, let's talk about comedy. All right. So I'm going to go down and beckon. Beckon them into your world of comedy.
0: All right. It's quite simple. Have a right. go. In terms of recent British comedy, actually Anglo-American comedy, there's a period of really high-profile political satire, especially those Iamando Yanucci shows, like the thick of it here and Veep in, in the States, which were mostly written by the same people, and it fits perfectly into the culture of kind of the the late period of third-way politics. It's essentially Blairism, which The Thick of It is making fun of. What exactly its relationship to it is, like emotionally and politically, is always quite complicated. Because and none of the people associated with that were were fans of Corbyn at all. Although it was really funny, like The Thick of It, I always said to people, you know, I have a friend who, who was a writer on The Thick of It, and I used to say to him, it was actually, I don't think they even knew how accurate it was. My experience of sort of being around Westminster, especially during the Blair and Brown years, is you could have just literally filmed actual conversations, people were having them. And if you just edited them in the right way, it just would have looked like an episode of the thick of it. That sort of political class, they are that venal and they are that ignorant of anything outside their own immediate interest in any given time. But the thing about satire, it's a question that's often been raised by cultural critics about the whole concept of satire, is whether you can really make a sort of politically radical point ever using satire, or or if satire only sort of works to the extent that it's always appealing to a set of norms which are sort of inherently conservative. So arguably the the limitations in some way of of something like The Thick of It is that although it was really good at poking fun of the venality and self-importance of this professional political class, on the other hand, it was always doing so from a perspective that sort of implied that this wasn't structural to their position; that somehow it was just because they happened to be a bunch of self-important idiots that they were behaving this way. That, like, they could have been in the West Wing if only they'd been the characters from the West Wing. I mean, th- I don't know if I agree with this argument. I'm not I'm not putting it forward, but it is an argument that's been made over the years that that's how satire always works. That somehow you, you, it's always sort of conservative. I mean, this partly goes back to the fact that the, the term satire was first used. You know, to refer to the writings of the the Roman writer Juvenal, who is basically criticizing what he sees as the decadence of contemporary Roman society when he's writing from a very clearly conservative perspective. You know, he he thinks Roman society has become degenerate, effeminate, overindulgent, over sexualised, too multicultural. I mean, he's quite explicit about all this and harkens back to the days of the Ethnic and moral purity of the, the senatorial republic, and so there's this. There's a really interesting question. I don't know. I don't know what I think about it. Really, what do we, I mean? Can is satire inherently conservative, or can there be something else?
1: Well, there's one. There's one point I want to make, which is related to something that you raised there, Jeremy, which I think will be interesting as we go through and talk about different kinds of comedy, which is. Like, what is the affect and and the outcome on the longer term that the different kinds of, you know, comedy or comedic culture produce? So talking about s- satire, for example, does it expend somebody's energy in terms of, you know, like watching something like The Thick of It? Does it make people more cynical because they're laughing with the cultural production at that kind of archetype of person? then does that relate in any way to an emancipatory potential, in a sense? So are you looking at that and thinking, wow, these people are really shit, I want to do something about it? Or is the cultural production in itself and you can think about this in terms of other uh, arenas of comedy, whether it's going to stand up, etc. like just allowing you to free yourself of some kind of frustration that you have towards you know, certain realities in society or certain, like we said, archetypes, and therefore allows you to go home and not do anything about it. And I think that's one of the questions that I'm, I'm interested in as we talk about the different forms of comedy over history and like this, the function that it fulfills, in a sense, in, uh, especially in groups at, at certain points in time.
2: Yeah, it's a good way to put it, yeah. When Jem said, Is satire always conservative? I was gonna say, Well we'd have to put something like Brass Eye up as the opposing argument, which I don't know if it actually achieves the opposition to that argument or just reinforces it. Who was Brass Eye who presented Brass Eye and wrote it? Chris Morris. Chris Morris, yeah. That's it. Yeah. So this is in the in the nineties, uh late nineties you know it's basically a spoof on on the media and it's like a spoof on these sort of like you know the spectacle over news content sort of thing but he also enrolled he also did these like pranks where he enrolled politicians and celebrities to denounce this new drug which can cause check neck in which your neck swells up so much it, it goes over your nose and people are dying etc <laughs> the, drug is,
0: the drug was supposedly called Cake. So he actually Cake, he got yeah. various Tory MPs to go on camera denouncing yeah. the evil of Cake and then Channel 4 broadcast it.
3: Cake needed an actively political kick in the pills and that's what it got from MP David Amos
2: MP. Look at that. A hundred grand in the pocket of the filth that sells it. A big yellow death bullet in the head of some poor user... Or custard gannet, as the dealers call them. And then there was a notorious one around paedophilia where he, he invented a, a fake campaign group called Nonsense. And I'm talking nonsense. I've <laughs> <laughs> got a load of people who go on and say and, and denounce um, uh, paedophiles uh, in ridiculous ways and say, I am talking, we are talking nonsense. <laughs> and it was funny, much funnier than when I just said it then. Uh, And so, yeah, and that caused a shoe scandal.
1: That's pranking, isn't it? That's pranking, which is also a different category.
2: It is pranking, but it was pranking tied into satire, though. Because it was it was making a satire out of the fact that these people would say anything if it, if it looked as though it was the right thing to say and then you could gradually introduce more and more nonsense into it.
1: Right, yeah. I mean,
2: I think it did, I mean,
0: it sort of did have a radicalising effect for people to some extent, Brass Eye, didn't it? I, I don't think, I see, I, now while you're saying all that, I'm thinking I don't really agree with this thesis that satire is necessarily conservative and I'm going to say... You know, as a good like sociological cultural theorist, it's just silly to say that any particular form ha- has an inherent mm. meaning anyway. It's going to depend yeah, on the wider agree. the wider cultural ensemble into which it's inserted, and and it's going to be different for different viewers. I mean, part of the point with any any sort of artistic endeavor, you know, any kind of writing, for example, that's not just didactically academic or political, any kind of literary fiction, and that inc- that would illiterate re- writing, and that would include. Just comedy writing for TV or something. The whole point of it is, it's actually going to mean diff- slightly different things to different people. That's why it gets an audience. That's why it becomes something more than just a, one particular niche group talking to itself. So, for some people, the thick of it was clearly like radicalizing, especially, especially at the moment of the beginning of Corbinism when all of these. MP labor MPs were revealing themselves to be just just actually characters from the thick of it it was like a reference point people could use yeah. and say look they really are like that yeah. they've got to be got rid of and for other people it's just provides this reassuring sense you know it was it was something for people to nod along to and say yeah it's inevitably like that like you can't change it and it's funny it makes so. them
1: more cynical and it makes the people more cynical yeah that's yeah. the be- bit that i'm interested in like you know is it radicalizing or does it make people cynical
0: so all this means we can't generalize about satire or comedy so that's it for today everyone <laughs> <Thanks> for
1: <laughs> <you>. <laughs> goodbye the shortest podcast ever
2: you've been listening to nonsense <laughs> no um- <laughs> <laughs> i mean it, that, that whole thing about i think it gets to a really important point that right which is especially when it goes into like the 2000s and you have like series after series of have I, have I got news for you what it creates is a general sense of like cynicism about politics and about the idea that politics could ever change anything which is fine if you're new labor if you're your starmer and your idea of politics does not involve mass engagement with politics that's fine that's, if it's just administration that's not a problem at all mass cynicism is what you basically want so like you know that being revealed as a cynical actor is no great loss basically because that that's basically what you need out of the general public i think the problem came in when there was this re-emergence of mass engagement with politics and even enthusiasm for politics you know obviously we're not allowed to to think about this now but you know Jeremy Corbyn went round the country and there were huge crowds went to see him you know people were singing ooh Jeremy Corbyn you know on the streets in, in nightclubs etc around the country that does not fit the script and i think that's what that's where the problem was during corbynism was that all of the satire shows just basically carried on with this general cynicism.
0: That's a really good point. That's I think we've got to put that in a bigger historical context for people quickly. And this is something specifically the experience of, say, people mine kids' Keir's age, the historic experience is this. When we were really young, when we were like first old enough to watch TV comedy and understand it, we were living through the early to mid-'80s, the first great wave of so-called alternative comedy in Britain. It's led by people like Alexei Sale. And comedy was absolutely seen as in the forefront of, of a sort of cultural front against Thatcherism. That's how it was seen and it was seen as like in, as political and, politi- and self consciously politically radical. That was the generation of people who were kind of the generation above us really. That was like the the late boomer comedians actually or maybe the youngest gen x I don't know. But then the people who were sort of our age the kind of gen x comedians who had quite similar backgrounds or more, or more privileged backgrounds compared to people like Alexis Sale so sort of quite traditional british comedy background oxbridge you know elite backgrounds in the 90s they developed this completely different repertoire which in some ways was a self-conscious reaction against the perceived earnestness of that generation of alternative comedians and instead what they cultivated was this sensibility this whole structure of feeling which was just deeply anti-political basically it was deeply it was both deeply self-congratulatory on the part of the particular elite class fraction they belonged to very smug and self-congratulatory very much punching down other people as it developed into. To the early 2000s you know people like badil kind of made his reputation with that kind of comedy and by the kind of early 2000s it had got into a place where indeed the highest expression of its art was something like the thick of it but it's it's more casual you know less less artful but more widely popular form was things like indeed things like that show um have i got news for you which just actively promoted this deep deep cynicism am i I remember I wrote, I wrote an article on Open Democracy when Boris Johnson first became mayor of London. And I said, basically, people were voting for Boris as just a vote against politics at that time. It was just this kind of anti-political, this expression of a kind of anti-politics. And it was really that comedy culture did become really a kind of a central engine of the anti-politics. And that's why when we get into the Corbyn years, it's it's sort of surprising and unsurprising to people that it's, com- it's it's these comedians who there's almost no other cultural sector wherein there's almost such total like hostility to corbinism than in sort of national in sort of tv comedy like there's almost no example of a prominent comedian who wasn't very viciously anti-Corbyn, apart from a few holdovers from, who were really holdovers from the 80s. From of like, comedy. Basically. Yeah, people like Alexis Sale and, um, you know, Mark Steele, pe- people like that, so...
1: Also, their lines of comedy about Corbin this i mean I, I think we're not we're not just saying you know we're saying this was at a certain level of sophistication not just because we supported Corbyn at the time but like it, it, the, the comedy was also just really cheap like it wasn't very sophisticated at all had no lines
0: no they yeah they had no they had no position from which to respond to it
1: and also i, I just one one thing on that i think i think it was interesting you you mentioning You know, all of the the hordes of people are coming up to see Jeremy Corbyn and the people singing, oh, Jeremy Corbyn in the clubs, etc. And I think what's interesting there is it's not because, you know, Corbyn was a particularly, like, you know, charismatic orator or anything. It was like, it was about what the, the comedy that came up from the movement, which, you know, would be something that we would say, but it was true. It was like there was so much, like, hilarious. And really, really enjoyable cultural production at the time. I mean, even if you go back in the history of this show, you know, like all of the, the 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 songs that we you know sang at the time of the election stuff, like it was hilarious and really joyful.
2: I think what's going on there is the reason nineties comedians were. And they're all sort of like nineties hangovers or basically, you know.
1: You guys also just really hate the nineties. There are some good nineties comedians, don't we'll hate talk the about 90s. that later. You guys hate the nineties an and love the eighties. Um, okay, go. good, good
2: to hear that. <laughs> let's just get into the into like a little bit of comedy theory at the moment. The the structure I've said this on the show before, but the structure of irony, it creates two audiences, right? one of which is like the naive audience who doesn't get the double meaning of irony. And the other one is the knowing audience who recognizes the double meaning. And there's the humor comes from the complicity between the knowing audience and the the comedian or the the teller, right? The other part to think about is that like comedy sort of relies on shared premises, you know, shared presuppositions. You know what I mean? You've got to have a shared understanding of how the world works. To some extent, even if you're going to defy those, those lines about what what the shared understanding is you know and the shared understanding during that whole period of the of the 90s and into the 2000s was a mass cynicism against politicians but that there wasn't any shared consensus about cynicism towards this wave of people who were getting political enthusiasm that hadn't been established you know what i mean that's why the comedy was so bad (laughs) the anti-corbyn comedy was so bad And like, what was going on during that whole Corbyn or the Euphoro Corbyn period was there was a battle to to construct who exactly the naive audience was, so that all of that comedy was about people who, you know, were enthusiastic about Corbyn. They're naive because they don't understand how the world really works, and it because basically capitalism was in or UK capitalism in such a bad fucking state that just did not fly. Basically, that actually. It's the Blairites who are the wise ones. That's just fucking not going to fly. Do you know what I mean? And so the, the Corbynite comedy was the flip of that and said, and oh, we participated in this, in our anti-90s things. They, All of these hacks, they're the naive audience. They cannot get out of this tiny little parochial 90s world view that they're in to understand what's going on at the moment. Do you know what I mean? It was like, There was a twisting battle about who could define the naive audience. Ultimately, the Corbynites won, but then lost in the much more important part of politics, which is uh, control over this over the state and the political party. So it didn't matter oh, wow. that we won, but <laughs> well, it, it did matter that we won because there's still this this more general uh, sense of it, of dissatisfaction. I think and dissatisfaction about and, and feeling that you know that that mainstream politics is cynical and also naive about like you know the real state of the world. So it's not all a waste of time. Just trying to. Talk myself around again.
1: No, 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 <laughs> no. But also, there's like the you know, there's the this idea of like the, the 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 comedic crowd. Maybe I should call it, or like the crowd that produces you know comedy for itself as you know some sort of like vanguard or rev- with revolutionary potential. Which I think we all kind of felt at the time, all sharing in this kind of uh, sense of humour, but also like taking the mission of what we were trying to do quite seriously. Yeah. You know, it was fun times.
2: The 2017 election where, where, where with all of the memes coming out, the memes and the, like the videos, etc., really, really quick, much, much funnier and wittier. And like basically Twitter's a horrible place and, and it's obviously dying, but it is quite good at generating that sort of witticism, that sort of live witticism that builds on it, on it, on each other.
1: Which is why you spend 20 hours on it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, luckily, um, my friend Elon Musk is trying to force me off, force me to to, to spend less time there by making it awful. Uh, so it might be a problem that solves itself. But. Anyway, I'm just reminiscing, basically, about a time in, in of history which um, has been completely and utterly excised from uh, the official story about uh, the last ten years. So.
1: That's been happening for 150 years. Every time the left loses a battle, so you know, here is the historical record. This is the point, isn't it?
0: Well, we've we've situated our, our, the present moment quite well, I think. I suppose it's it's important to qualify. Some of these generalizations and point out well, that there have been, I mean, there have been a fair few left wing comedians still active, especially in the broadcast sphere over the past few years. People like Mark Steele, Mark Thomas, Jeremy Hardy, God rest his soul. And to some extent, these sort of centrist comedians have really attracted attention. It's not so much even because they really are representative of comedy as a form in, in Britain today. I don't think it's true, really. Yeah, no, it's, it's partly it's because they seem to crystallize a particular set of attitudes so perfectly like no one represents the the culture and the limitations of the worldview of the center is dad's like better than david Badil. like no one mm. like he just he he just is, he's un unreflexively unashamedly you know this guy just standing there like celebrating his own privilege every time he opens his mouth and like seemingly not aware that that's what he's doing so I think it's partly why they've attracted so much attention, isn't it? But I think we've given a good analysis of, of the way in which their particular mode of comedy just exhausted its even its own claims to humorous legitimacy. Now, now it just it does just look like, you know, increasingly grumpy old men. You know, who, being angry that anybody is questioning them about anything. That wasn't funny. That was just satire. You know. Um...
2: You could hear the your feet pound as they raced across the ground. In the 1980s in particular, there was a, a whole series, a real massive wave of like novelty songs and comedy songs, basically. So that was at the high point of single sales, etc. So these things would be on uh, top of the pops and would become real part of, of public discourse in a way that isn't so true now, I think. There's all sorts of things you could you could point at for that. One of the more famous early examples was by Benny Hill, Ernie, the fastest milkman in the West. They called him Ernie. Ernie. And he drove the fastest milk cart in the West. She said she'd like to... There was a, the, this comedy group, The Wurzels. <laughs> who were sort of like, they portrayed sort of country bumpkin sort of stylings. Perhaps their most famous song was like, I Am A Cider Drinker. Yeah. I've always liked, um, I've got a brand new combine harvester because it was a, <laughs> a take on that. Uh, I've got a brand new pair of roller skates. I don't, don't know what that says about me. Cause I've got a brand new combine harvester and I'll give you the key. Come on now, let's get together in perfect harmony. I oh, got 20 acres
3: and you've got 43.
2: The last one I'd mention in that sort of comedy novelty songs to illustrate the sort of how widespread they were. There was a song in 1984 by the commentators called 19 Not Out, which is a Rory Bremner song. And it was a response song to a song called 19 by Paul Hardcastle. Paul Hardcastle's song 19 was like it was a very early use of songs, like sampling, etc. And the point was that the average age of the of, of a soldier in Vietnam was 19. And uh, the commentators one was about cricket. And it was like about the English cricket team that year. The average score of a batsman was 19. And
0: I suppose the point is that in 1984 to get a number one record meant you had sold so many records that even if it was the only record you were ever going to have any success with, it was something everybody was conscious of for that year
2: i put that in for Matt, actually. Producer Matt loves a bit of cricket. He'll definitely keep that one in. <laughs> in
1: 1984, the Test Series against the West Indies seemed like just another rubber, but it wasn't. It was different in many ways, and so were those who did the betting. In 1933, the England captain's average was 35. In 1984, it was 19. No, no, no 19. 19. No, 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 19.
3: 19. 19. 19.
1: Should we pull back to the general and dissect comedy and what's funny for a bit? And maybe think about things like what happens to comedy over time and space? Mm. Do things stop being funny over time? Like we talked about that a little bit. And this Mm. idea that if you're in a different era, you know, with a different, you know, zeitgeist and, and mood then things that used to be funny are not funny anymore or different. certain kinds of comedy don't travel over time.
2: Secret of good comedy, isn't it? Timing.
1: Timing?
2: The secret of good comedy. The way you say that joke is, uh, the secret <laughs> of good comedy is timing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> See, Keir's, Keir's, just, Keir's just suggested this so he can just make as many jokes as possible. <laughs> I've got a topic. whole
2: list of one-liners oh, crowbar into right. the show. I have an actually, right. right.
1: He has, he has. Yeah, just as I did, do we want to talk about that a little bit more? Like comedy over time?
2: Well, we should also, let's widen it out to also um, over geography as well. Like, how how culturally specific is comedy? Uh, Is it country specifically in terms of time or is it country specific in terms of the cultural forms that you're embedded in? So, quite often in in this thing as national, etc.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested if there are some things that are universally funny. Like, are, is are other people's misfortune, like somebody tripping over, you know, the the classic, like tripping over a banana stick, like is that universally funny? I don't know what the answer to that is. There might be, you know, it might be so culturally set that that is like such a tragic thing to happen that people don't react in that same way over di- over uh, in different countries.
2: I think like physical comedy is the thing that 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 like lasts and also spreads that and like fart jokes as well i think it's like <laughs> yeah uh, probably universal <laughs> and then but like obviously that the jokes that rely on cultural presuppositions or even wordplay etc obviously they don't travel so much yeah
1: yeah no no definitely because i was trying to think about like what what travels between over between english and arabic and there are, I felt like there are some things that do, and and the, the the this idea of having like linguistic technologies, just the concept of wordplay, like that definitely like exists in 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 Arabic, definitely in Egyptian comedy, and definitely in 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 English comedy. And I was wondering whether you know, I was thinking about the contrast between like different kinds of comedy over the Arab world, which is which you know differs hugely over countries and the same in English, like thinking about English as a language situating itself in different cultures, like, you know, whether it's America or the, or the UK. And obviously, you know, in English speaking countries, there's these whole contrasts of, you know, there's a lot of American comedy, which, which I listen to and I just think it's really boring and flat. And there's a lot of stuff that Americans laugh at, which I just think is ridiculous. Like that's not even funny. And then there's much, I think British humor is a lot more complex for example. So I was thinking about that sort of stuff and thinking, like, what are the different po- cultural points that produce that, produce that with this whole, you know, stereotype that, you know, Americans can't do irony, for example.
2: Or that the Germans aren't funny. It's the, it's the, it's the great stereotype.
0: I sort of feel like we can't really answer this. Like, we should have gone and found... I'm sure people have written books, people who are, like, comparative linguists and stuff, who've, who've got the real intellectual resources to try and comment on this and we haven't really done the research on it so i don't i feel like i don't really know i mean my big cross-cultural experience is coming from a sort of transatlantic family and i would have to say pretty much there's no there isn't like some identifiable cultural difference in american and and british humor It's, it's much more to do with specific demographic groups so basically people from the same kind of social class and class fraction in the States will laugh at exactly the same stuff as people from the same kind of class fraction in Britain and
3: vice versa. You think really? Versa.
0: Yeah.
1: Totally, okay. You know. I don't, yeah.
0: Well, all the show, like my favourite shows, you know, my favourite comedy show in Britain, apart from my, well, the two shows that have made me laugh, the two British comedy shows that made me laugh the most the past 20 years were the Thick of It and Peep show. And they're huge in the States. They're huge with like other kind of lefties sort or, of, you know, slightly sort of intellectually oriented bohemians. My favourite American shows are like Curb Your Enthusiasm and The Simpsons. And like, I I don't know anyone. I hardly know anyone in Britain who doesn't like those shows. So, and then Benny Hill. Benny Hill was like a huge, insti- it's an absolute institution in the States, but it's an institution with like, you know, a much more sort of working class demographic, like just like it was here. So I think there's this kind of process whereby people who who are not reflexive at all about their own, frankly, the social specificity within their own country, then encounter like another country on much more general terms, and they see people who come from completely demographics to them responding to things, and then say, "Oh, that's what like American people are like or French people are like," and it's. It's to do with this. It's yeah. You know, I don't think it's. I don't see any evidence for it, really. I
2: think though. I think the evidence would not be found in the comedy shows so much as like. I, I, I'm not really sure whether it's true, but the impression is that like Britain is a lot more sort of piss takey um, and bantery than the US. Basically,
0: no, it just depends where you are. Like if you're in you're talking to people in you think people in New York. I mean, the cliche about New Yorkers is they sort of take they sort of take the piss all the time. It's just—I don't think it's true. It's just—you know—these are both these are big places. You know, there's a big difference.
2: I'm just trying to trap you into admitting that Liverpool and Scousers aren't any funnier than. (laughs) Well, this is well.
1: (laughs) Uh, Okay, okay, but there's 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 several levels here, right? So it's not—you mean we can't generalize to any one of these points, but definitely, you know, like even though I have spent 20 years in the UK, there's still there's there's stuff culturally that goes over my head, right? But more or less. There are, you know, I I tend to like British humour, I mean, as a very general point. And so when we're talking about comedy and and talking about it over over space, what's interesting for me is talking about my own experience here, because it's quite different to you guys, because I have an entire different language of which I engage with comedy in. And I tend to think that I'm hilarious in Arabic well i tend to think i am (laughs) i think you are too i
0: think you're hilarious i'm
1: hilarious in arabic (laughs) we need some
2: way to fucking
0: prove this but
1: i'm not that but i'm not i'm not that funny (laughs) but i'm not that funny i just despite being related to a python i don't think i'm that funny in english and i i
2: can't let that go go (laughs) just explain your relation to a python
1: Eric, eric Idle is my dad's cousin Oh really? There's very few idols amongst the AI. Did you not know this?
2: No. No, and I'd never made the connection in my head with the with the surnames either.
1: Well I, all the idols I know who are very, very, very few all make up spoof songs on guitar, including me. So I tend to, I think we've got that in common, but I love to make people laugh, but I don't think I'm that funny in English. And I think part of the reason why I'm not that funny in English is because I've got like various different cultures sitting inside me. So I'm not fully able to, ing- I, I'm not fully in the comedic kind of canon of like one country and not the other. Having said all of that, I think like, for example, like Egyptians are really quite pompous about this, like we think we're funny and think none of the other Arab countries are funny and if I watch Arabic humour from other countries, I just I just think it's really flat
2: I was going to say, could you Work out what the difference between English and Arabic humour is, but like I couldn't really—I find it hard to characterise English humour, so that's quite a hard question.
1: There's a lot of wordplay in Egyptian humour, whereas if I said um, so, like there's a very common joke that people will say, like in school or whatever. There's a there's a syntax to jokes that will go something along the lines of the um, one there once were two bald guys fighting over a comb, right? That's not funny in English. It's absolutely (laughs) hilarious. (laughs) It's absolutely hilarious in Egyptian Arabic. Like this is a sort of the sort of like cracking wise constantly. Like you can make anything funny in Egyptian Arabic is my experience. So, and I miss that. So this is something where if I don't get to speak to Egyptians, I don't tend to engage with that certain bit of humour. And I also miss that if, I, if I'm around people who are not British or don't understand British humour for some time. So I think that's an interesting thing for me about like how comedy sits in identity. And I think it's like a massive thing.
2: I mean, obviously I find uh, bald jokes offensive, but uh, <laughs> that's a, that's <laughs> a crap. The... They're offensive to the bald community. They are, you? yeah. Who are very put upon it. Obviously this joke doesn't work on, on radio because you can't see that I'm bald, but believe me, I am
1: it is interesting to to reflect on these ideas of what that does then in terms of translating a way of seeing the world like across space if we're interested in space and time which you know i definitely am and i think we are is what what do we then take with us or not take with us when we're trying to engage internationalism uh, internationally with politics you know, or just we engaging with other people, like, and that whole thing going back to like the the famous example that Kia brought up of like Germans being funny or not being funny. Like, how, does that does that precede like the war? Like, where does this come from? Like, what you know, do you know what I mean? And what function does it fulfill in society? And definitely, the joke about Germans not being funny, you know, has you know has nationalists roots. I would think is that not right?
2: Yeah, but I think Germans also have that sort of idea that they're not as funny. There's this german comedian Herringveh, who, who, like, he's on the English circuit, and, like, that's his whole, his whole thing. He's actually really, really funny, but his whole shtick is Germans aren't funny sort of thing.
1: Well, it uh, isn't much to German humour, because, I mean, in Germany, we Germans, we like a laugh. Just like you Brits, we really like a laugh. The only difference is we Germans laugh once the work is done... Well you laugh instead of doing any meaningful work, and uh, well, that's the main cultural difference between Britain and Germany. I think we should definitely play Gin by the Tiger Lilies. Finally, I get to play one of my uh, macabre cabaret uh, songs. And it's funny. It's, it's a song that's funny on several levels, because one, the lead singer has this comic falsetto, but also they dress up as kind of scary clowns in this kind of dark cabaret way. But also the, the whole content of the songs about making fun of others and our own misfortune and downfall uh, when we're drunk, effectively, or addicted to drinking gin in this case, but also it's kind of a piss-take of the colonial era and pastiche um, and quite farcical as well. So quite a complex set of comedic values in one song.
3: His fiance came with a wreath As he was laid six feet beneath
1: Abandoned by his kith and kin because he did succumb to Jim. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I guess one of the things we keep circling around is this sense that comedy is all is for it to work it has to involve some shared frame of reference but of course everyone at any one moment in time is inhabiting many different temporal geographic cultural experiential frames of reference and I think part of the phenomenon I was sort of getting at is partly to do with the fact, well, especially in the age of the internet, but really since the beginning of globalised media, I mean, British and American people are not occupying completely segregated, discursive universities anyway, a lot of the time. The, the extent to which the languages have affected each other is, is something I've really noticed really in the age of the internet. You know, you get British colloquialisms creeping into American vocabulary in a way that never used to happen at all, in a way that I still find quite... Sort of shocking when I encounter it because I because I grew up being used to the idea that Americans wouldn't understand any any sort of British colloquialism at all would never have encountered it whereas British people would encounter them all from American TV and films and so but that's also true at all all, all kind of scales I mean we think of sort of body humour as being in some sense u- universal and ahistorical because well yeah it's true everybody farts you know no, all humans always have done so you can always make a joke about it and then. You know, there are there are lots of different scales at which experience can be shared or not shared by different groups and different people. So, but I'm not sure is that I'm not sure if this is anything but a really trite observation because it's not just
2: comedy. I mean, any form of communication requires a shared frame of reference. And but I think comedy is different though because I think it's not just yeah because it, it, it's not because it, because basically comedy relies on on that shared frame of reference being presupposed and then tested. And so it's like the testing of the boundaries. Is part of what creates the we. Do you know what I mean? So comedy, particularly when it's you know in a comedy club or whatever, you're trying to create a create or define or delineate the shared frame of reference.
0: Yes, yeah, for sure. I mean that's, I mean that's we're getting into sort of theories of comedy there now, but that, and that is one of the most persuasive ones that comedy is a way of constantly. It is both reproducing and testing shared frames of reference. And it's also demonstrating a certain facility with with you know, creatively manipulating the norms of any given frame of reference. I mean, I did grow up in that sort of broadly, you know, Liverpoolian sort of Northwest culture of just constant, just constant wisecracking and piss-taking, like all the time, being the the sort of medium of everyday interaction a lot of the time. And that is very much, I mean, that is a process by which people test other people, they test their capacity for a certain creative, discursive ingenuity, but also a certain sort of resilience, a certain lack of earnest emotional investment and their membership of a certain linguistic community. And that is sort of being tested all the time in that way it can be like really appealing and engaging and and make life really funny. And And it, and it can be also sort of really exhausting sort of can't say anything. You can't, you know, you can't say anything earnest.
1: Yeah. This is making me think that there's kind of two modes of comedy. There's kind of the comedy of the event and there's the comedy of the everyday. As you were talking Jeremy, I was I was trying to think about like how Egyptian humor maps over there, and whether there's any relations relationship to the kind of Liverpudlian way of you know speaking and this this constant jokes. But then I was also thinking about going back to what we were saying about the Corbyn moment. About and I, I I forgot about this, and I think it's worth a mention. Just the importance of comedy at the time of the the Egyptian revolution in 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 um in twenty eleven. It was it was so, so central. People taking the piss out of the regime was so central to like how the cultural production was manifested and, and found itself being made in the square. And it was, you know, the the legacy of that, I think, is is probably really important and it's something that, you know, the state is wanting to, to to override. So I think there is something there about like the power that comedy has in being able to amplify events and to hold people together.
0: Oh, I think, yeah, I think that's really interesting because there's sort a of model of how communities work and communication works that, that's implied in that model of comedy that we would just elaborating before you said that, is that, to some extent, social norms, they don't just exist. They're not just static. They have to be constantly reiterated, and they're sort of always changing as well. And they change largely through the ways in which every time they get reiterated, they get changed a tiny bit and a tiny bit, and they move in different directions. And and so that that's a model of kind of general social life in which the everyday itself is always a process which is made up of lots of tiny micro events in some sense, the everyday isn't just like an endless ongoing static norm it is itself this endless process of micro events and um comedy works at, at the space always at the space between those sort of micro events to the points where norms are being tested norms might be changing norms might be changeable the the contingency of those norms is becoming visible to people i mean that's the whole theory of irony that you know, by being ironic you make you make visible make you know, obvious to your audience the extent to which you're conscious that norms are socially contingent in some way so i think that is a really useful way of thinking about it like event and the everyday but i think it also would focus attention on the fact that well the everyday itself is always made up of these little micro events and, and in some sense history is all comedy like laughter is always this sort of exposure of the eventual nature of uh, of the even the most sort of apparent seemingly everyday interaction so i think that is really i think that's a really useful way of thinking about it
1: most, most blokes, you to know, be playing at ten, you're on ten here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on ten on your guitar, where can you go from there?
3: Where?
1: I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to eleven. 11. exactly. One loud Why don't you just
2: make ten louder and make ten be the top number and make that a little louder.
1: These go to eleven
2: we can't have a show about comedy and play music about comedy without mentioning uh, the greatest mockumentary uh, rock mockumentary uh, in history which is spinal tap this is spinal tap which is a, a spoof film from 1984 of the heavy metal band or the pretend heavy metal band spinal tap uh, which puts so many things into into public parlance such as turning the amps up to 11 etc but one of the things about the on the Tap was that the songs are actually all right, they're not bad. And they're just sort of like, basically that excessive stuff again, just exaggerating like the, the general norms of, of heavy metal. So one song we could play would be Big Bottom. The opening lyrics are, the bigger the cushion, the sweeter the pushing. That's what I said. The looser the waistband, the deeper the quicksand. Also I've read, I won't go on actually, it gets worse and worse. Big
3: Look, David. I'll tell you now. Yeah, when I was managing
0: the Swindon branch, our perception of your branch was they're having a laugh. Thanks very much. No, it... no, not in a good way. Having a laugh, mucking around at the expense of Wernham Hog. Well, I was to say if they weren't mucking around, having a laugh all the time, it would be much no, worse. I'm not interested it's in my... that,
3: David.
2: People have put forward this idea that that there's been a, a comedification of everyday life. i.e., there's that much more than in the past. There's been there's an expectation that you should be, op- either be funny or open to humour, basically. You should be a good sport, you know, at work, whatever, you know, and it's that that spread of, like, banter. You might think of it as the Scouserization of uh, society or something. Um, so Laurent Berlant puts forward this idea that, that there's been this sort of spread of comedy so that it is, or at least a certain form of humour, is, like, the dominant way in which... People uh, are trained to encounter the world. I think that that is something that leads on into sort of this idea of a general cynicism, you know, a sort of cynical irony, as Zizek might put it, uh, which is a really big problem. And it's you, you sort of mentioned it in terms of you know the being worn down or the difficulty of putting forth an earnest or sincere statement. And of course, like for politics, you need to be able to put forward sincere statements, basically. And the risk of putting forward a sincere statement is always that you will be cast as naive. Do you know what I mean? You don't understand how the world works because, you know, we all know that everybody's out for themselves, et cetera. And everybody who's involved in politics, they're just self seeking, et cetera, and all these sorts of things, which is why the revelation of corruption and these sorts of stuff doesn't really have any effect. It just reinforces people's idea of cynicism that politics and, you know, sincerity is not the, or sincere politics is not the, the way which you can deal with your uh, your life's problems
0: i feel like this is one of those things that claims it's very difficult to test the claim that somehow everyday life has become more comedic or everyday interaction and discourse has become more comedic because we have very very weak evidence for making any sort of judgments about before the existence of recording media like film and sound recording we don't really you know there weren't people going around transcribing like everyday ordinary conversations between people in everyday life like people just weren't doing this it wasn't so we just don't have records we don't really know
2: i mean yeah i'm not i'm not sure about it at all this is sort of like uh this is this is put forward by burland and a few people like that i'm not exactly sure but i think yeah i i, I sort of see the argument around how the workplace has been deformalized. In some ways, you know, the introduction of like play into the into the workplace and these sorts of things, the gamification of work, and all these as some sort of trends which could fit with this idea that you know the workplace has to be more informal. Of course, like the office is the the TV show you'd go to to think about that.
0: But you think you think of like the the importance of wisecracking and like movies in the forties and fifties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I get the point about the deformalization of work, but I don't. I'm not convinced people weren't kind of, you know, cracking jokes all the time, even in these relatively formal contexts.
2: We should play Callum R. White, Never Do Shit At Work, which is a song from earlier this year, which is just a song about people goofing off at work, basically saying, I never do shit at
3: work. I don't ever do shit at work. I don't ever do shit at work. Up and down, he got them out. But ride right up and down, he got them out. I'll never do shit at work. I'll never do shit at work. I'm in here just in company time. I'm in here just stealing company time. I'll never do shit at work. I'll never do shit at work. But ride right up and down, he got them out. But ride up and down, he got them out. I'll never do shit at work. I'll never do shit at work. Here just tilling company time. I'm here, here just tilling company time. I might just take me an extra break. I might eat somebody lunch today. I came to work with the cush smell on me. I just hope my co-worker don't tell on me, cause I behind
2: now. It's like basically it's the contemporary version of Take This Job and Shove It, which was a big hit for for Johnny Paycheck back in the seventies again,
3: I think. I'm tired of waking up for the white man Say I don't give a damn about this job I'm about to slap my alarm off the nightstand And didn't call in And say I got the chicken pox in No ride to the doctor's office And I just got a call from Jeff Bezos He said he got the new robots in Cause I don't ever do shit at work never do We shit had to at queue work. for
1: about half, well, 45 minutes a long in a tunnel, you know. And I'd been dying to go to the laboratory for ages. <laughs> so I farted and... Um... No, no. Well, Mir- Miriam understates
3: what she did.
1: Well, I was irritated, <laughs> you know.
2: Do we want to talk about that Christopher Hitchens article of why women aren't funny? It sort of fits in this idea of, like, is it is culture... Is, is, comedy culture specific is it a male affect or a, or a male disposition uh, what do you think Nadia
1: i like the argument that one of the reasons why this thing might exist in culture that women are not funny is that i like this idea that being funny is close to being clever and that cleverness can be seen as a threat yeah. And so therefore, there's a function saying that women can't possibly be as funny as men. So that I find as like quite a, an appealing argument or also answer to the question. It's difficult from my vantage point because I find men funny and women funny, you know, and I'm not a man in the world, so I, I can't view it from that perspective. But as an argument like that, that, that appeals to me about why women might not be allowed to be funny.
0: Yeah, to me, I always associate that idea that women aren't supposed to be funny just with the fact that women, you know, in certain cultural historical contexts are not supposed to make public displays of their cleverness. Mm. I mean, something we talked about on the in the show is when we were preparing for the show, it's this idea that there are that quite a lot of cultural and social contexts in which... Humour is basically the only socially acceptable form of cleverness, and this, I would say, like this is not at all. I'm not at all talking about a sort of northern working class context here. Actually, this is more something I think comes from British elite culture, and, it, and it's deep anti-intellectualism and philistinism. One of the things I very much agree with this sort of account, the classic account of Perry Anderson and Tom Nairn on this idea that there's something about English culture, specifically, actually, not British culture, something about English culture which goes back several hundred years, which is deeply anti-intellectual, like compared to other sort of elite cultures globally. And it has to do with the specific history of, of English capitalism, really. And the fact that it, you know, in really crude terms, it has to do with the fact that English, it, the English ruling class basically invented modern capitalism and they just sort of invented it by accident. They didn't really have to think about what they were doing and it was better not to. So there's this sort of anti-intellectualism built into English elite culture, this Philistinism, and within and it sets a set of cultural norms, according to which cleverness generally is suspect it 's associated with foreigners or intellectuals who are kind of dangerous or or subversives among the lower orders you know you don 't want the lower orders to be too clever because they might get ideas above their station, which is partly why you know intense humorousness becomes associated with sections of the you know, the British working class, especially the English working class, which are historically also quite, you know, restive politically, you know, quite antagonistic to the ruling class and less deferential. I mean, that's also, it's important to say that's that's a, a part of your sort of late 20th century Scouse identities that, it, into, you know, you you know, being funny is part of being clever and being clever is part of your resistance to you know, Thatcherism, really so i mean it's quite it's, it's a very late invention it's a whole other show so i, I know somebody at, at liverpool university has got a book coming out just this year about the, the sort of invention of scouse identity and the and the and the scouse political identity and the fact that it's all the whole idea of the scouser as this kind of radical figure is a complete invention of the 60s before that it was a tory city and a you know, slave city going back far enough but but it's a really important part of it but anyway i'm um, and within this context in which these elite philistine anti-intellectual norms are being observed cleverness becomes like the only way you can acceptably demonstrate cleverness and of course you know within cultural context in which women are not supposed to display their cleverness then they're not supposed to be funny.
1: Yeah I think that's right and I think there's also something about like what gender norms do to like in as a general thing women are expected to edit themselves you know and kind of like yes. manage manage their image and I think one of the reasons you know and what they say uh, and how it affects men and you know uh, potentially uh, affects themselves And I think like one of the reasons why Miriam Margulis is hilarious is you know like she's funny but I think one of the reasons why she's Particularly funny is she basically just acts like a person rather than like a funny person rather than projecting, you know, woman as is in the in the Simon de Beauvoir sense, you know, because she she you know she's constantly talking about like pissing and farting and shitting and stuff. And you don't expect a woman, a woman to. That's not the sort of stuff that women are supposed to make jokes about. Women are supposed to make jokes about periods. That's where we're supposed to make jokes. And then you you lose all of the men to that sense of humor. But because Miriam Margulis is is kind of engaging with like person stuff rather than just like woman stuff. It kind of, there's a space between that in which I think makes it extra funny.
2: I mean, with uh, Miriam Margulies as well, particularly um, uh, uh, in more recent times, she sort of developed this, she sort of developed a, a persona based on like the older woman who is basically invisible and nobody cares about and like is not is meant to be attractive to men. So she doesn't give a fuck, basically. <laughs> and she can say whatever she likes, basically. And she doesn't she doesn't give a fuck about what you know. She doesn't give she doesn't it's not that I don't give a fuck if I upset somebody or not. It's that I don't give a fuck if I um smash through social norms and say the things that you're not supposed to say. Do you know what I mean? That's it, that's her public persona in some sorts of ways
1: yeah and there's there's more and there's more and more theory that's coming out about you know all of that stuff and like you know post menstruating women like menopausal women and like how that's situated in culture and and with comedy as well there's lots of interesting stuff going on in that
2: the other thing i I would say about comedy is professional comedy has been is one of those things which was quite resistant to female participation, perhaps in the states perhaps more than the u k because alternative comedy took a very different form in the u k So quite a lot of female comedians came through. If you've ever seen the show 30 Rock, which is written by Tina Fey, that's based on, which is hilarious, it's a great show, uh, that's based on her, Tina Fey's experience becoming the head writer for Saturday Night Live in 1999. So Saturday Night Live is this huge comedy show in the US. Uh, You never guess when it goes out, Saturday night. Um, And she became the first ever head writer writer you know and it was 1999 before the first ever head writer female head writer on saturday night live and i like um hired loads of loads of women to write for it and and that was one of those big key moments which cracked open comedy the us comedy circuit
0: yeah i feel like this is one of those issues like i'm old enough to remember like i guess back to the in the early 90s a time when there were so few women like really visibly in comedy that even like f- feminist, self-consciously feminist women would sometimes are, would would sometimes say, well, maybe it's true, maybe it's true, like, women just aren't as funny. And it's just, it's been completely disproved and like a really basic liberal feminist argument that women were systematically excluded. And once they stopped being systematically excluded, it turned out they were just as good at it as men. It's just been totally proven over the past 30 years like it's all it's sort of boring to say but it's one of those areas in which I, I, I can remember a time when people were sort of there seemed to be so few women involved that people were, one, were wondering oh, is is this something that like builds into patriarchal culture and it's it's you know it only it's turned out clear. it only is at the level of people just being excluded there was this, it was this idiotic stuff like you couldn't be there was this like people thought you even when they were like female comedians like they couldn't be good looking there was this idea, like somehow you couldn't, uh, you couldn't be like a physically attractive woman and and be funny. Like I mean, remember-
1: this is what I'm talking about. This is relating back to my point about Miriam Margulis, You know. Is that there's, there the, the, the becomes this obsession about like what the woman rep- represents. So it's not, yeah, you can't yeah. just like, you can't just make comedy as a person. It's like, you have to then have a different, you have to fulfill a different set of criteria, be it, you know, one way or the other, which is like the typical way in which like women are critiqued, you know, wearing too much, not enough, pretty, not pretty, et cetera, rather than like, is this stuff funny?
2: Yes. That, yeah, that's, I think that's right. Like in the US, one of the big, the first big female comedians is Phyllis Diller. She goes back to the sixties and and perhaps even before that. But her whole shtick was, you know, about um, she had this big wild hair basically, and it was all about how um, she wasn't attractive. Basically, uh, she was sort of like you know a man hunter, but she wasn't attractive. If you read read how she describes it, she she says, you know, that was what I, the persona I had to adopt in order to. Basically, be acceptable in the comedy circuit.
0: I mean, this is all open to really classical feminist theory, indeed, like De Beauvoir, Joan Riviere's famous psychoanalytic essay about how femininity is a sort of masquerade of this the Laura Mulvey stuff about how the, how the woman is supposed to be looked at; she's not supposed to be an active subject. So, these women who have to, who want to adopt the role of active subjects, they have to sort of performatively exit their status as objects of desire and object just just objects of viewing and contemplation
1: also we have to laugh at the men like this is very important men get very upset when women don't laugh at their jokes <laughs> like in general like in the world you know and definitely like i've been you know i've been socialized into laughing at men's jokes that i don't find funny like it's taken me like 35 years to catch myself. It's a very, very strong socialisation point to like you know laugh and giggle at uh, stuff you don't find funny, but you only realise afterwards. You just know that that's what you're supposed to do. It's like really intense.
2: Yeah, I can see that. The feminist killjoy is like you know, that's the the accusation, isn't exactly, it?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that feminazi is worse, you yeah. know, like that. It's is so strong, that stuff, because it's both ways, you know, like as you're you, you are articulating, it's like women are not supposed to be funny, but then they have to laugh at the men if the men are making a joke.
0: Well, they have to laugh for the men, don't they? They're not supposed to laugh at them.
1: Oh yeah, sorry. sorry. I mean, at their jokes, at their yeah. jokes.
0: Yeah. I mean, they, that's another cliche of life in patriarchal culture that the thing men fear most from women is being laughed at the thing women most fear <laughs> from men is being murdered
1: murdered exactly <laughs> exactly exactly
0: i mean there's also that i mean of course that's a, i mean that's something anthropologists will say isn't it you know better than me nadia that you know women you know female solidarity partly
2: predicated on being able to laugh at men is you know, something you find in a lot of cultures uh, it's become a standing joke on this show that we always play a Chumbawamba song. It's a chamberwomba song for every occasion, so we could play "Big Mouth Strikes" again uh, because it contains a recitation of a very famous Lenny Bruce song to come as a preposition.
0: Bruce's death. This is a song from Bob Dylan's 1981 album "Shot of Love," which was one of Dylan's evangelical Christian albums. So Dylan, who had been seen as this iconic space person for the counterculture in the 70s, begins his journey to becoming, you know, I think what we would more accurately call, say today, I mean, a fairly conservative, if not reactionary, cultural figure from the mid 70s onwards, and yet he still creates this song in 1981, which is an elegy to the passing of Lenny Bruce, who is the first comedian in the English-speaking world to be seen as a kind of heroic figure of countercultural attitude, someone who uses his position as a stand-up comedian to expose the hypocrisy of straight society. And he really is the template for later figures like Dan Carlin... Richard Pryor uh, in this country, Alexis Sale, people like that, so it's kind of fascinating that dylan he casts Lenny Bruce as a martyr in some ways in this song, which in some which is a very dylan nineteen eighty one Christian thing to do. It's a very Dylan Christian way to think about a person and their heroism, but the fact that it's Lenny Bruce, who was definitely not a Christian that he picks upon is really interesting. A fascinating bit of cultural history, if nothing else,
3: this song. Lenny Bruce is dead But his ghost lives on and on Never did get any Golden Globe award Never made it to cinema He was an outlaw, that's for sure, more of an outlaw than you.
2: I think that, that word to kill joy, though, is worth unpacking a bit because as good Spinozists, of course, accusing somebody of killing joy is like the worst accusation you could make. Do you know what I mean? Mm, but yeah. I think it I think it gets into something like because we haven't really talked about laughing too much at the moment, but like laughing is always a social thing. You can laugh on your own, but you've always got an imagined other people in your head an imagined audience or or, or whatever in your head. And it's also, it's contagious. So it's um, it's like trans some sort of way. You know, you can catch laugh. In fact, it's very hard not to catch laughing if somebody starts laughing. You will tend to laugh. Do you know what I mean? It's like something which which happens. There's like spontaneity involved in it. And like often surprise, you can surprise yourself laughing. So it's what, like it's an unusual part of life in that sort of sense. And so I think that's why people get so upset. when When humour fails, basically, I think that's why people get so upset about it.
1: But it's also about, it's also about having your guard down and how that functions and where it functions and going to, going back to the point about like, you know, it it makes people relax. And if they're not prepared to relax and then they find themselves relaxing in the, in the company of others or in a group, like that has a specific affect and effect on the situation, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's out of your control and it's physiological as well. Like a yawn, like it's physiological in the body.
2: Yeah, you know. so it was like a yawn, yeah, yeah. Because yawns are catching as well. They're contagious as well, aren't they, yawns? As as the listeners of this show will be experiencing right now. Kadam! <laughs> ba-boom! <laughs>
0: well, I mean, Bergson says that laughter is not an emotional response. He just differentiates it very categorically from an emotional response. And he's, he says it's somehow unemotional. It's something else. And it's a really... Machinic, basically. If, yeah. It's, yeah. And if you want to make a differentiation between affect and emotion, then at least according to some models, not all, then that's a really good example that laughter is an, is an affect, but it's not an emotion. But humour isn't exactly an emotion. It's And to some extent, it involves a certain distanciation from emotion, which ties into things we were saying earlier. So which is partly why it's sort of, you know, that's why historically comedy has been regarded as le- the less serious, you know, the less noble art form than than tragedy because tragedy deals in authentic emotion in some sense, whereas comedy doesn't. It deals in something else. I mean, I thought, I wrote I write an I, I, I write an essay when I was, for my master's degree, I remember, about comedy and tragedy at one point, sort of thinking about that. Oh, so and did lots I. Of, hey, that's, that's great. And lot I mean lots of people have written about this philosophical tradition of thinking about comedy and laughter, and there's this kind of persistent sense that there's sort of there's something sort of there's a something countercultural about valuing comedy over tragedy instead of tragedy over comedy and lots of people have different ideas about why that might be and it might be that the kind of earnestness of tragedy actually doesn't doesn't actually speak to the reality of most people's everyday life in the way that comedy does or it might be that Laughter and comedy are about overturning power relationships and hierarchies. Whereas tragedy always sort of reinforces them. And yeah, it's um, there's lots of different takes on it. Do you remember your essay, Nadia?
1: Mine wasn't a master's essay. It was because because I had a, a minor specialization in performing arts, so it was about like yeah, deconstructing like tragedy and comedy over history. And I was like doing Roman and Greek stuff. I have to I have to find it. It was I remember it being a really interesting delving into the difference between them and and why but i wasn't exactly dealing with the question about like why one is elevated over the other but i think it isn't i mean i would i would hazard a guess like to take a um a kind of overarching just stab at it that it has to do with like what you think the fundamental condition of life is
0: yeah it does have to do with that yeah I mean, my, I, I only remember a bit of, my, of some of mine, but it was res, it was partly responding to this observation that psychoanalysis that Freudian psychoanalysis has this fund has a, although psychoanalysis has things to say about comedy, and, and Freud has his famous book about jokes and their relationship to the unconscious, that psychoanalysis has a fundamentally tragic view of human existence that it's mm-hmm. which, which is yeah. partly why it slots so neatly in some ways into a particular cultural tradition that goes back to the ancient Greeks and carries on to the future and you can just read that as saying well sophocles and freud and shakespeare and all these other people they understand the fundamental fundamentally tragic nature of human existence boom there we go but you can also if you want to I think I did want to you can say well that's also it's also one of the limitations of psychoanalysis that it doesn't it, that it's the comedic dimensions of every of every despite having things to say about jokes as purely linguistic constructions it, the fact that it's it's not that good on analyzing the comedic elements of everyday life uh, demonstrates some of its limitations yeah
1: totally totally it kind of fails fails in that whole area well it's
3: actually too hot yeah ever guess what i'm giant of the books. Ooh,
0: we talked a bit about Scouse humour, uh, the great, iconic, uh, Liverpoolian comedy band, or the band Half Man, Half Biscuit, who come out of that post-punk, dull culture scene of the 1980s. I think I'll still active. And we're responsible for lots of very funny and and quite anthemic songs in their early days, in the early 80s and going forward. But one from a bit later, I'm not sure exactly what year this is from, is uh, has now become probably their best-known anthem, Joy Division of Oven Clubs. And what I don't know is if... They made up the concept of Joy Division Oven Gloves and made a song about it and then people started marketing Joy Division Oven Gloves or if it had already become possible to purchase Joy Division Oven Gloves. But uh, I and lots of people I know now own a pair of oven gloves which have the design on them, which, the, which is the iconic cover design on Joy Division's first album, which you still see a remarkable number of people of all ages wearing on, on T-shirts. I, kind of never, I never stopped. As someone who grew up in the Northwest in the 80s, I never stop being surprised that people are still wearing that t shirt. But it looked. Yeah, Joy Division oven gloves. The fascinating but telling incongruity of somebody having a piece of baking equipment bearing a, a design associated with youthful post industrial bleakness. It never stops being funny. In the day. I
3: keep waking from the Quakers. Joy Division gloves. Let me
2: join 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 Perhaps this might be the point where we could talk talk about the, the various theories about comedy. What comedy are? Is this the right point for it? Yeah. So when uh, when people talk about theories of comedy, they normally categorise it into three categories, which is like superiority theory, relief theory, and incongruity theory. And so superiority theory is sort of often associated with people like Thomas Hobbes.
0: It would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. He's such a misanthrope.
2: <laughs> yeah. But it's sort of it, it, it basically it's this idea that laughter comes from feelings of superiority over other people, basically. And in fact, Hobbes says, laughter is nothing else but sudden feelings of glory arising from sudden conception of some eminency in ourselves by comparison with the infirmity of others. And with our own former self, something like that. And so, yeah, that, that's the idea. And like when we think about that, we think about racist or sexist jokes, these sorts of things. You know, in the in the seventies, actually, probably the eighties as well. You know, an Englishman, a Welshman, and an Irishman walk into a pub would be the setup to a whole series of jokes in which the Irish would be the butt of the joke because, like, they're stupid. Basically, was the was the stereotype. So that's the sort of joke that you you, you would sort of think about. And then other countries have their own. Versions of of the people who are who are always stupid. I can't quite remember what they are now. Well,
0: in the states, it was traditionally pe- Polish people, you know, Polish jokes and Irish jokes. It's incredible bit of like cultural history that's rightly, I suppose, or forgotten now, isn't it? Like Irish jokes was a massive thing when we were kids, like up until the end of the eighties, and it was a real test of whether you were you came from like a. A family that had some level of political consciousness that you'd been taught not to tell Irish jokes. It was like it was the first form of anti-racism that most people, especially people in working-class communities, got taught was don't tell Irish
2: jokes.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, like that. That kind of like humour as a form of control, as well. You know, but it's, it's
2: that forming the we that we talked about earlier, isn't it? Like you know, I mean, we could we could link this to to um, the the bit of history before alternative comedy comedy in the UK there were a couple of different circuits one of them was the variety circuit which comes from like vaudeville a music hall etc and, and that's what the roots of things like just sketch comedy eric and ernie uh, etc and the two ronnies these sorts of people but then there was this other circuit which was the northern working men's club circuit In which you really would expect to have like sexist and racist jokes, but it's a sort of weird one. That that circuit had a sort of it's almost like there's a shared pool of jokes basically, and the idea was nobody could ever own a joke, Um, and so people would just steal their jokes etc. all all the time. There was this show called The Comedians, which was on um, BBC I think in the seventies which was just like Northern St- working men's clubs, comics, basically doing racist and sexist <laughs> jokes. People like Bernard Manning, et cetera. And like, they had to, when they were do, when they were doing the shows, they had to cross off when somebody had done a joke because they'd all had the same jokes, <laughs> right? And so they had to, you know, somebody later on in the bit had to work out where the, where, the, where the joke was, et cetera. And so that sort of superiority comedy was like, you know, really, really, really dominant in that, not only that, but... I know a um a singer on the who still works on the the sort of working man's club circuit who and like he does those jokes all the time so a guy called Jimmy Echo, who was my friend harry's dad and he's been a, like a singer on that circuit for ages and how, he comes up he's up whenever you see him or when when you see my friend Harry, he's always got a new joke from his from his dad jimmy echo and that was that was so the alternative comedy that jem was talking about earlier that was you know it was sort of in re, in reaction to that 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 arose. And they were mainly sort of like very short jokes or one-liners. You know, take my wife, please, is the famous Youngie Henman one-line joke. Basically, it was it was alternative comedy. It sort of starts in the early, it's probably late 70s, early 80s, with people like Tony Allen who formed this comedy club. There was a rejection of that, and then they were looking to people like Lenny Bruce uh, and Richard Pryor, et cetera, which then eventually turns into, and that's when comedy, stand-up comedy turns into this something much more elaborate you know your 90 minute show with like all sorts of like callbacks too early and all sorts of structures get developed etc which is much more of what we know now as a stand-up comedy anyway that's a superiority theory which is sort of um, which obviously does it obviously does address certain forms of comedy doesn't it right you do get jokes that explains a racist joke it also explains the liberal comedy news shows that you see, you know, in the US, etc., in which the the joke is basically look how thick Trump supporters are. That's superiority complex theory, isn't it, basically of a different sort of kind.
1: Also, there's that link between this idea, and I don't know where this comes from, is that if if we brand people as stupid, they're therefore no longer a threat. Mm. There's some kind of internalizing logic to that. So that works with the kind of Boris stuff. It's like, I don't want to think about, you know, uh, Boris Johnson as a threat, or I don't want to think about the Trump and his supporters as a threat. Therefore, I, I create, I I participate in this kind of cultural uh, production to say that they're stupid. Therefore I can draw a line under it and carry on with my life and not be an active participant in trying to create an alternative. Has a specific function.
2: That's interesting because, like, basically, people being stupid <laughs> um, is it like it's a really big part of comedy, isn't it? Basically, and that takes us to back to Bergson's definition of of comedy uh, or laughter. He says, like, laughter is something mechanical encrusted upon the living basically he's sort of like a vitalist so it's like what, what he's sort of saying is that like basically comedy comes about when when something like somebody's mind or body is shown as like really inflexible or it's reduced to a few characteristics do you know what i mean and so he's got his theory of laughter which is what society really wants is greater elastic, elasticity and greater sociability amongst its members so laughter is like a punishment for being shown to be inflexible in some sort of way do you know what I mean? To be a little bit machinic in some sort of way. And so you can totally think that about those characters, which we'd say are politicians becoming comic characters. And so, like, obviously, Boris, rather than Boris Johnson, Boris is the example of that. You know, he invents his character on Have I Got News for You in this famous segment where he's being torn a new one about um, this, this tape where he's arranging with a friend to get a journalist beaten up. Well, Boris was caught on tape as well. Ha ha ha! Richly comic.
3: Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sorry,
2: what was that? <laughs> I think it written a r- r- good point. Yeah. <laughs> he said, "Ha ha ha!" Richly comic, mm. which it jolly well was. <laughs> it, it just goes on and on and on for ages. Creates a really awkward dynamic, and in the end, the other guy who's like one of the hosts he sort of steps in and sort of like makes a joke out of it and then suddenly boris you can almost see a light bulb go off in boris's head oh this is the way you go you get out of it isn't it you reduce yourself into a comic character who's was limited in some sorts of ways and then you can basically use comedy to step out of criticism you know you can see you can go and look watch that on on youtube that comedy you can see the moment that boris johnson turns into the character boris basically something like like mr bean is of, of the every example of this sort of you know or this idea of like you reduce yourself down to an, almost like a caricature or, or a very limited for like not a full vital human being, and we find that sort of funny. And of course, that that superiority theory sort of fits with that is that we can castigate a whole series of people as not fully human, and therefore that's the 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 laughter is the punishment that we inflict on those people.
0: Well, so what are the how do we compare this with the other the, the other main theories then?
2: Well, the other main fe- the other theory is like relief theory is is this idea, well, like it says in the, in the name that like, there's some sort of build up of like nervous libidinal energy, which hasn't got anywhere to go. And like the humor is the way to relieve that, which is, we just sort of saw that. I was it, describing Boris's invention where, the, where it became really, really awkward and that sort of stuff. It's associated with like Freud, his book jokes in relation to the unconscious. So that in that there's sort of like, there's some psychic energy is like summoned for for a purpose, but it can't be dissipated. It can't be released. so, humor is the way in which that can be expended that unnecessary
0: i mean the model is basically nervous laughter yeah Freud, freud's model is that nervous laughter is the most basic form of laughter and so in some sense all comedy is a sort of jet it's a deliberate cultivation of nervous laughter like it creates a sort of creates a bit of tension and the, the tension is then released and then that, and that's how you get the comedy i mean that's not totally incompatible with with the other theory we're going to mention, with incongruity theory, is it? Yeah.
2: I think it's really useful to describe that cringe theory, as in curb enthusiasm being like the, the best example of that, which we mentioned earlier. I love that show, but like it's fucking hard to watch because you know, it gets so, you, you you feel so awkward. Do you know what I mean? And I can't then,
1: watch cringe alone. I can't watch it alone. I can't. Really? It's, it's really weird. Yeah, it's really weird. Cringy things. I can't do it alone at all.
2: Well, Kirby, your
0: enthusiasm is an interesting test case, isn't it? Because in some ways you could read it as being funny through the superiority theory that the whole point is that we just feel superior to Larry all the time, even mm. though he's like one of the richest people in America. I think. I mean, he's not really but he's a member of a kind of he's, he's very one of the richest people in sort of show business and that's so we feel superior to him and there's also there's the relief theory which is that the whole thing is about generating awkward scenes that then result in a sort of discharge of laughter but i mean in some ways the oldest theory of comedy which goes back to aristotle is the incongruity theory which is a theory that just something becomes funny because i mean the famous phrase from Aristotle is "humor is a buckled mill wheel." It's a wheel that isn't rolling straight. So there's there's just some sense of incongruity of two things not quite fitting together. And you know, the whole premise. I mean, I think nobody ever s- seems to say this about curbside for me, the whole premise is there's these these. These these people are living this kind of California lifestyle, but they're all they're New Yorkers, like Larry and all of the other sort of central characters. They all come from New York, and they all behave they behave like cliched, you know, wisecracking, misanthropic New Yorkers. But in the context of like L.A., you know, Southern California elite culture, and it's the sort of incongruities of the way that, that not just Larry but the other central characters all negotiate that that I think is really sort of generates all the humor actually. And so you can sort of understand it in those terms as well. And maybe they're not, comp- even, they're not even incompatible theories. That
2: no, I think, I think that works because like, the awkwardness comes from like that Larry is like he's not following social norms or he doesn't quite know what the social norm is. And it's like that awkwardness that he's breaching social norms. And it's
0: not just that. I mean, the persistent, the joke that develops over the series is he's, he's, he's got all his own norms
2: yeah and that okay. these
0: norms are presented as somehow idiosyncratic to him, but they're not really they're the norms they're the norms of like a sort of of someone in Brooklyn in nineteen fifty six I think which he's then somehow trying to apply in the culture of southern californian kind of advanced elite consumer capitalism
2: yeah but yeah but I, I like that 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 analysis but it it, it fits with that idea of like awkwardness comes from like the social norms being violated and, and like basically it just becomes more and more excessive with, with Larry and um, <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, basically it just builds and you can, you can almost, you can, you can feel the cringe coming from the setup earlier in an episode, you know, that's going to unfold later on in a really, really cringy way. But that, that also, that, that fits with like, it doesn't, I don't think that has to be superiority co- uh, uh, theory because it also fits with the sort of relief theory because it's that, you know the awkwardness builds up, but there's, we don't know what the the way to dissipate that. You know, I mean, the, to re-erect social norms in some sort of way.
0: Well, I mean, that show. I mean, that show also. I think. I mean, it plays with superiorities uh, experiences a lot because, like, half the time you're cringing and feeling superior to Larry, and half the time Larry himself is the moral agent, like exposing the venality yeah. of, of yeah, Californian yeah. elite norms. So, I think all of all of these things apply in different ways. I would want to throw in. Because I think I've al- we've already sort of alluded to it earlier, actually. Like more contemporary theories of comedy, coming from people like Paolo Verno, coming from some contemporary readers of people like Bergson and, and Bataille, like who famously it has a famously complex relationship to Bergson's theory of comedy, and they all have to do with things actually we've already talked about earlier in the conversation: the idea that the point of comedy is to is to sort of creatively explore. Social norms. So, co- comedy is really, really important in everyday life because because it is a way of of, ex- of demonstrating your kind of expertise, your fluency with social norms, precisely by bending them in ways which are amusing and are, but not so extreme as just to appear mad. I mean, one of the arguments is, and this would go back to say Lauren Berant's, um stuff about. Um, yeah, you know, another much missed figure I have to say. Another Lauren Balance uh, stuff about the comod- the comedification of everyday life, this idea that well, in a postmodern culture, and one of the features of contemporary culture is that compared to other cultures that humans have usually lived in, we're perpetually conscious of many, many different social norms applying in different contexts and different people having different norms and the norms not really being fully agreed on in many areas of life by the society. And so one of the things you have to do to successfully negotiate this context, which is, I, I mean, I, w- I do go along with this. I, I mean, some people contest it, but I think I, I do sort of go along with the idea that it is a feature of contemporary cultures, that they're extremely complex by historic standards to the ex- to the extent that people are having to live in societies where they know that their way of life and their value system are quite radically different from people they're having to live with and interact with like all the time, a lot of the time. And that is a relatively unusual feature of human cultures. It's not totally unprecedented, but it's probably unprecedented on this scale. What living in such a culture demands of you, it demands of you a certain flexibility and a certain fluency in the ability to move between different social registers and social codes and under those circumstances, humour is a way of demonstrating to the people around you your facility at moving between those codes. And that's one reason it's so important. But of course, that comes back to stuff we were talking about earlier. One reason why so many of us experienced the humorlessness and the kind of non-comprehension of those '90s comedians, when faced with the cultural historical shift which Corbynism represented, it's because it seemed like it seemed like they were not doing their job. Their whole job as comedians is supposed to be to encourage us all to cope with change, to cope with discursive fluidity and to understand the provisionality of all worldviews and all value systems. That's supposed to be their job as comedians. To some extent, that's always been the job of comedians. Like always, there's always been the job of comedians. Going back to like the ancient Greek, you know, the ancient Greeks, the, the whole point of comedy was partly to sort of demonstrate the relative contingency of the norms of your own culture and society. So when you have a bunch of comedians you can't do that, when faced with a radical historical rupture, all they can do is sort of scream at it and try to make fun of it. It feels like they're not doing their job. It feels like they're not doing their job in a way which is which really highlights something about the, the limitations and the non provisionality for them of their worldview.
2: Yeah, no, I, that sort of fits with like a Bergsonian uh, conception as well because <laughs> they became figures of fun, basically, on, on my version, my, my part of Twitter because they were like they were showing their inflexibility, their inability to adapt, basically, or the inability to, to recognise how they, they've sat within something much, much... All right, let me do it this way. <laughs> There's a whole set of, like, Lacanian sort of... Post-Lacanian sort of theories of comedy and one of them is from... Alenka Zupanik, who wrote this book called uh, The Odd One In. And she's got this like, weird sort of conception, which is that comedy comes when the universal is re- revealed as particular. Right, and so like I think one of the things she uses is this idea of like you know the king who's universal slipped on a banana skin, and the universe is re- revealed as particular. I think that's what's going on with like the yeah, the it's 90s typical comedians. of
0: that Ljubljana school the Slovenian Lukanians. It's making a completely trite point, which as, as anyone who's listened to the show should be aware has been being has been obvious to anyone who's thought about the nature of comedy since Aristotle, and yet it thinks it's a really
2: profound point. Sorry, Bill. A, a, a bit of academic sectarianism there. <laughs> anti lubiana anti prejudice. <laughs> Brilliant.
0: Brilliant. Oh, the universals been made particular. No one's ever thought that before.
2: But that is what's going on with the comedians, is that like they they think that they have like a universal position. And the change reveals it as particular and very constrained, you know, are, are basically the result of a particular historical era and social circumstances in which they arose, do you know what I mean? And so that's why they become a figure of fun, because of they're their, their inflexible, do you know?
0: Yeah. You should cut my rant there, where people just think but I've got something against it? Slovenians. I know it's for <laughs> your benefit.
2: No one Anti, else needs to Anti-Slovenian uh, uh, prejudice.
3: I was gonna clean my room Until I got high <laughs> Ooh. I was gonna get up and find the broom, but then I got high. Uh. My room is still messed up, and I know why. Why, man? Yeah, (laughs) hey, because I got high. Because I got high. Because Because
2: I got high. We should play Because I Got High by Afro Man which is about smoking weed and being stupid, basically. It really fits with big sonian So this is an excessive, this could be comedic, because I'm treating something pretty flippant as a, as a serious, to apply serious theory to. But it is that, like, you know, that there's a whole set of comedy around getting high, like you know, Cheech and Chong films from the, the 1970s, I imagine, actually, Cheech and Chong, uh, about people getting really, really stoned and, and you know, basically behaving, like not full human beings behaving in an, in, a, in an elastic way that's like like a lot of comedy around people being drunk etc fits that big sonian idea that actually what what we're laughing at is people reducing their capabilities in some sort of way and once again the laughter would be originally be the sort of punishment that we would inflict on on the on that subject because in fact what we really want is for people to be full vital beings
3: now I'm a paraplegic, and I know why, why man. Yeah. yeah! Cause I got high, because I got high, because I got high. la 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 da Now stand aside, worthy
2: adversary. It is but a scratch.
3: A scratch? Your arm's off. No, it isn't. But well, what's that, then? I've had worse. The last conception
2: of comedy I wanted to raise was this: this American theorist called uh, Todd McGowan. He's also a sort of like a, he's coming out of a Lacanian sort of thing as well, because he says that that like humor comes from the encounter of lack and excess, basically. And so, like the whole Lacanian thing is that the subject is you know, defined by a lack or whatever, and then the drive to, to for wholeness explains all sorts of things, nationalism, blah, blah, blah. But I quite like that idea of like, so it's sort of like that excess and lack thing is sort of like like when you treat something which is actually quite trivial in a massively excess way, or you treat something which is really quite excessive in a really minimal way. So one of the examples that comes to mind is like, you know, the Black Knight scene in uh, Monty Python's Holy Grail, so he's the guy who basically, you know, he's like, you know, come on, I'll fight you. He gets an arm chopped off, and he's like, it's only a scratch. It's only, a... and he gets his both arms and both legs to cut off, and he's like, come back, you coward! I'll nut you into the middle of next week. And it's like, you know, so it's treating this like, like really uh, excessive wounds as though they're almost nothing. Do you know what I mean? But I think it also helps to explain like that, that like black humor. That you get in like you know emergency services or doctors and paramedics etc that sort of I suppose that's relief relief theory as well
1: yeah definitely
2: that's sort of like relieving it because you're treating something really serious as though it's trivial or something like that do you know what I mean
0: yeah that, I think that is a good model that is a nice theory because partly what we're talking about here is comedy is always comedy is always sort of foolish and there's the whole etymology of the word "fool," which you know meant a sort of clown and it means a clown in the middle ages and you know something I say to the kids sometimes that the 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 fundamental nature of wisdom and maturity is is getting things in proportion it's knowing when it is appropriate to be this upset about that thing happening or not care about this thing happening it's about proportion then if comedy is always about things being deliberately put out of proportion you know that that's sort of fits with that in a way, in an interesting in an interesting sense. I think I think that is quite interesting.
2: Yeah, because I mean the other thing about the fool, of course, is like that. The fool is the is the only person who's allowed to say the truth to power, etc. You know what I mean? That's the the thing. And I think that sort of feeds into the thing that we sort of sidestepped at the beginning of the show, and we've probably got more more ammunition to to deal with it now, which is that that whole um, the sort of like a BLM, Me Too, a sort of backlash against against that from certain comedians and and like a defense of like free speech and you should be able to say what you want and take the piss out of anybody sort of thing and in some ways it's i think that it's like it's almost like within that sort of comedy or that comedic world you know the comedian that claims some sort of jest as privileged you know what i mean to say stuff that you can't say in other sort of you know other sort of circumstances, and so you're you're exempt from those sorts of having to behave in a certain way in relation to social norms or something like that. I also think what's going on is a generational change, a bit like the '90s comedians, basically, where basically people have been passed by by social norms, and so now they're they've got that that rage that comes from. From having failed humour, basically, because you know they were the ones who controlled what humour was in the past, and now it's passed them by, and so there's that that rage that comes out. You know, we should play Tears of a Clown, which was written in 1967 by Smokey Robinson, but I think we should play the 1979 version by The Beat because it is great. I'm you One of the reasons I think all of this is sort of important is because I do think, like, one of the big problems we have is, like, how do you make sincere political statements in a time of, gen you know, generalised, of mass cynicism, basically, mass cynicism about politics? I wrote an article a couple of years back, well, a few years back now, about, like, why, why comedians are becoming populist political figures and so and, and it was just basically it was sort of provoked a bit by Russell Brand when he had that big flare-up just before the 2015 general election where he was um, you know he all of a sudden he became a sort of prominent political figure and then you can look at all other com- uh, c- figures I mean the most obvious one is Beppe Grillo in, in who's a comedian in Italy who basically formed the five-star movement that basically went on to be uh, the governing you know the, the the biggest party in Italian Parliament, etc. Once again, you know, a very populist, sort of almost anti-political, a bit a bit like the Russell Brand thing was anti-political. Although he was very much on the left at that point. And then there's all sorts of other figures you could point to. Zelensky, who was the president of Ukraine, famously he was a he was a comedian who played a comic character um, of the the president, being being the president of Ukraine before he was actual president of Ukraine. There's uh, lots of other several other figures you could point to as well. John Nahr was a comedian who became the mayor of Reykjavik et etc and these, these sorts of figures and it was definitely constrained in a certain period of time, and I was trying to think through what was going on with that you know and, and I think it is this 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 thing of like people trying to work out what the relationship between like generalized comedy and generalized cynicism and being able to to make sincere political statements that you actually do need to make. You know in order for for politics to occur, and so it's like the comedian are the people who are more, most trained on stepping back and forth over that that boundary. do you know what I mean in comedy, people can venture a, a sincere statement and if it doesn't go down well well you've got the tools to get back to uh, to an ironic stance, et cetera. I think that period has gone, and like the other the other thing that was going on at that time is like the the creation of Boris, perhaps Nigel Farage, etc, which is political figures taking on comic aspects in order to to you know, escape from censor basically. You probably put Trump in that, even though he had no sense of humor, would had never seen laughing, hated to be the subject of humor, but he could provoke laughter. You know, superiority theory laughter in people who who would go to his talks, etc. In that article, I was I was sort of like trying to present this idea of like post ironic sincerity as a as a way through that, and that would just be where you make a political a sincere statement, but you realize you know you, what you're trying to reveal is that like. This mass cynicism is not something which is transhistoric. It's produced by certain historical institutional structures, and it can go somewhere else. So you basically put forward a sincere statement, but like after you've moved through irony, so that you show that you're, you know, you're not naive. You're like the knowing audience, but the knowing audience who's not just hiding behind irony, something like that. Basically, whatever you think of that argument, I do think that the general problem of like how do you how do you make sincere. Political statements without being cast as the naive audience is like a general problem of for left politics.
3: And always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life. If life seems jolly rotten,
2: there's something you forgot. And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing. When you're feeling in the dumps, don't be silly chumps. Just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing. Ain't always look
1: on the bright side of life. Come on. Always look on the bright side of life.